Chapter number one, James chapter number one this morning. We'll continue studying uh, these verses in the Word of God together. I have been helped by this passage thus far, and I've enjoyed studying these verses uh, together with you. We've made it through verse number five of James chapter one. We'll kind of back up and review where we've been to get started this morning, then move into verses six, seven, and eight. That's our plan for today, James chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting verse 1 introduces us to the author of the book. It introduces us to the recipients of the book. The James of James 1 1 is most likely the Lord's half brother, most certainly the pastor of the early church in Jerusalem who is writing to believers from Jerusalem who have been scattered, verse number 1, because of the persecution that arose following the first murder of the early church, and that was Stephen, who was stoned in Acts chapter number 7. So these believers have had to flee this persecution, and James is writing to instruct them, to encourage them, and to uh, just try to be a blessing to them, that cross-reference for James 1.1 1, 1 is Acts 8.1. That's the scattering of the believers. Verse number 2, in light of those circumstances, look at the introductory statement of the epistle. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now, they had fallen into some temptations. Their faith was certainly being tested and being tried, they were facing the most difficult of circumstances, but the first word from their pastor was, don't forget to be joyful, which points out a couple of very important principles. First of all, that joy is not dependent on circumstances. Secondly, that joy is simply a matter of choice. And even in the midst of what they were facing, they could choose to have joy, to be joyful, to express joy, it was, a, it was a matter of accounting. They were to count it all joy. The reason was given in the next two verses. Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The reason they were to face their circumstances with joy was the certain knowledge and hope of what God was able to bring out of their circumstances. We have a very um, particular progression in verses 3 and 4. We've got uh, tribulation, which leads to patience, which leads to perfection. And that perfection is spiritual maturity. That perfection is Christ-likeness. That perfection is a, is a completeness in the Christian life. And you can't have the perfection without patience, and you can't have patience without tribulation. And the point of the verses is that the difficult times we face in life, and all of us have faced them, will face them, maybe even right now are facing them, those are the real catalysts for growth and development in your walk with the Lord. So count it joy. Learn to take advantage of your trials. 
Learn to rest on the Lord and depend on the Lord and allow the Lord to use what you face that is difficult to do something great in your life because he's well able to do it. And maybe he didn't cause it, but he certainly allows it for those purposes. Verse number five, if any of you lack wisdom, and that would be all of us, this is a great promise. Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. He won't chide you. He won't scold you. He won't mock you. He won't deny you. He giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. If you want to pray a prayer that God will answer, ask him for wisdom. This is one of those exceeding great and precious promises. This is a prayer that we ought to pray on a daily basis. But verses 6 through 8 continue that thought with these words, But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man, the wavering man, think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The context of those remarks is the asking for wisdom of verse 5. So we have a great promise. God has wisdom. God will give you wisdom. God wants to give you wisdom. God will liberally distribute wisdom to you if you ask him to do it. But verses 6 through 8 follow and emphasize the fact that when you ask God for wisdom, you've got to be serious about it. You can't waver. You can't vacillate. You can't waffle. You've got to have your mind made up that you want wisdom from God so that you can do the right thing and please the Lord and make the best choices. You've got to really want the wisdom when you ask God for it. You see, there are a lot of people who ask God for wisdom, but they have no intention of doing what God says unless it lines up with what they already want to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, Mark James chapter 1, let's look at some cross-references. We would like to get to some examples this morning and focus on double-mindedness, but let's attach this thought to the asking for wisdom in verse number 5. Come with me to Proverbs 17, next passage there in your notes. Proverbs chapter 17. So God will give you wisdom if you ask him for it, but you have to be serious about it. Let him ask in faith nothing wavering. Let not that man, the wavering man, think that he should receive anything of the Lord. Proverbs 17, verse number 16. Look what the Bible says here. Proverbs 17, verse number 16. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it. It's an interesting verse. Hold that. Look at Proverbs 23, 23. Proverbs 23, 23. The Bible says, Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. So wisdom is something, Proverbs 23, 23, that can be bought, obviously, it's not a currency exchange. You're not going to buy wisdom with money. But the implication is there is a price to be paid. There is a cost associated 
with wisdom. Back to Proverbs 17 and verse number 16. Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? This man might be asking God for wisdom, but he's not willing to pay what it is going to cost him. And if you're not willing to pay what wisdom is going to cost, that means actually following through and making the right choices and and setting the right priorities in your life and what you'll have to set aside so that you can exercise wisdom and do the right thing. If you're not willing to do that, if you're double-minded about this, if you haven't made up your mind, well, then why even make the request? Do you understand the connection? Are you seeing the, the similarity between these passages? Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. There's no use pretending that you want wisdom is the point from Proverbs seventeen sixteen. No use pretending that you want wisdom. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. And verse 13, the Bible says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. It is true that God wants you happy. We find evidence of this throughout Scripture. But God wants me happy is not an excuse to live however you want and to do whatever you want and to sin and violate his word. Now, most people say God wants me happy and they're using it to justify some decision they're going to make that goes contrary to the word of God. It's not how it works. We talk about this many, many times. But... The point is made again in Proverbs 3.13 that wisdom will add happiness to your life. Wisdom will make your life better. You ought to get wisdom because of all the benefits associated with it. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom. The findeth, that verb implies there's some pursuit. There's some seeking. There's some effort, right? Now, remember who wrote this? Who is the human author of Proverbs chapter 3. It was Solomon. Solomon was called the wisest man who ever lived. How did he get wisdom? Well, God came to him while he was asleep and asked him what he wanted, and he asked God, James 1 5, he asked God to give him wisdom. Let me ask you a question. Was Solomon happy? Now, this is it's counterintuitive. It's, it, it's not contradictory, though it might seem so. Proverbs 3.13 says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom. Solomon found plenty of it. But have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? That was in my Bible reading this morning, oddly enough. The book of Ecclesiastes would give you to understand that later on in Solomon's life, happiness was something that eluded him. He said that everything he found was vanity and vexation of spirit, right? And that was from the perspective of life under the sun without God. Solomon, he had found some wisdom, but he hadn't found the happiness. What was the reason for that? What am I getting to? Look at Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 18. Later on in the passage, Proverbs 3 says, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom. But Proverbs 3.18 says, she, and we're, we're discussing wisdom. Wisdom is being personified. Wisdom is spoken of in, in, the, in the, uh, the, the female sense. She, 
is a tree of life to them that, 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 that lay hold upon her. And happy is everyone, here's the word, that retaineth her. Solomon failed to retain the wisdom that he obtained. Solomon failed to retain the wisdom that he obtained. And what was that failure due to? I read it in Ecclesiastes this morning. Solomon was double-minded. In 1 Kings 3 and 2 Chronicles 1, there in Gibeon that night when God appeared to him, he said, I want wisdom. But later on in his life, he decided he wanted some other things too. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he searches and he tries all kinds of experiences and he looks for meaning and fulfillment in all kinds of areas of life. And if anybody on this earth has ever experienced life to the fullest, it was Solomon. And guess how he found it? He found it empty. What was his problem? He, he, he wanted wisdom, but that desire was later replaced with something else. Solomon was double Minded. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11. I'll show you what may have led to that. 1 Kings chapter number 11. Something that we can avoid. First Kings 11 and verse number 1. First Kings 11 1. But, but King Solomon loved many strange Women. Now, this does not mean necessarily that they were odd, that they were unique, peculiar, different, strange women. This is a term in the Bible that signifies they were foreigners. They were outside of Israel. And God had commanded the Hebrews only to marry inside of their nation. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a religious thing. They were not to yoke up with unbelievers. They were not to join themselves to Canaanites who worshipped idols and false gods. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Of the nations, verse 2, concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses. Now, what does that mean? They were the daughters of other foreign diplomats. These were political alliances. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Well, verse 2, that's exactly why God told the Israelites not to marry strange women, because they'll carry away your heart. And lo and behold, when Solomon married strange women, they turned away his heart. Verse number four, it came to pass when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. His heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. Remember James 1? Patience leads to perfection. Solomon doesn't have a perfect heart because his wives turned away his heart. Verse five, Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Now, earlier in the book of Kings, Solomon built the temple. Solomon constructed this great house for the worship of God. But look what he does next. Verse 7. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is poor Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of 
Ammon. You know who those gods were? Those were the false gods who required child sacrifice. Those were the idols worshipped by the Moabites and the Ammonites, the enemies of Israel. Likewise did he, verse 8, for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. You know what Solomon was? He was double-minded. Wisdom in abundance was his. He had asked God for it, but he wavered. He vacillated. He changed his mind. He had other competing interests and desires. Come back with me to James chapter 1. Let's not follow Solomon's example. Let's be single-minded. Let's ask God for wisdom and stick to it. Let's ask God for wisdom and be serious about it. Let's ask God for wisdom and not be diverted or sidetracked. James chapter 1 verse number 6. Let's define some terms, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave. That's a pretty good description. What does it mean to waver? It means to, means to be like a wave. To waver is to play or move to and fro, one way and the other, back and forth, indecisive, like me trying to pick a hymn this morning. <laughs> it was wavering. It's not the James 1-6 wavering, thankfully. To waver is to fluctuate, to be unsettled in opinion, to vacillate, to be undetermined as to waver in opinion or to waver in faith. Let us hold fast the pressure of our faith without wavering. To waver is to totter, to reel, to be in danger of falling. Why is a wave such a wonderful definition of wavering? Well, the words are basically the same, but think of a wave. Which direction does the wave go? Whichever way the wind dictates. A wave has no solid foundation, no solid basis, nothing anchoring it. A wave is subject to the dictates of its surroundings. And that describes the lives of so many people. No basis, no foundation, no anchor, just subject to the dictates of their surroundings. It's described in Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 14, be no longer children, tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lay in wait to deceive. You need to get settled, young people. You need to have a foundation. You need to grow a backbone. (laughs) Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Make your mind up. You can't be wishy-washy. You can't ride the fence. You can't have a foot in the church and a foot in the world. You can't try to please everybody. There's no use living that way. A double-minded man is going to be unstable in all his ways. Waves are pretty unstable, right? In, in, In Isaiah chapter 57, the Bible says, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. So, so, so double-minded, it's like being a wave. The wicked are like the waves. They're tossed to and fro. They're carried about. And the Bible says there's no peace in that. Okay? There's no peace in being double-minded. There's no stability. There's no happiness. There's no satisfaction 
in living a double life and being one way at church and another way at school. In having one face for Sunday and another face for when you go to your job. For coming to church and opening the Bible and singing the hymns and having a smile and then going home and getting on your computer and fool around behind your parents' back. There's no peace in that. It's double-minded. It's unstable. We call people who have mental issues unstable. When your mind is divided, you've got mental issues. I'm not trying to be insulting. I'm trying to be honest with you to describe yourself, get you to look in the mirror and say, am I double-minded? That's a problem. Make up your mind one way or the other, cold or hot. Stop trying this lukewarm garbage. Makes God sick. Double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You know, if, it, if you're unstable, if you don't have a solid foundation, it's really easy for you to fall. Right? Brother Gage played football. One of the most important things they're going to teach you, one of the most important techniques is just going to be your, your foundation, your base, your core, your stance in your position. A defensive back, you've got to have a certain stance. If you're on the line, you've got to get down a certain way. What's the reason for all that? Because if not, it's going to be really easy for you to get um, passed, for somebody to knock you over, for somebody to block you, get you out of the way. The, the, the solid basis is, is, is going to be one of the most foundational techniques. Okay, If you're unstable, that was going to combine, it's going to take no effort whatsoever to push you over and knock you off course. Look at me at Psalm 86. Psalm 86. It's a youth rally verse, a great cross-reference for James 1.8. Psalm 86, verse 11. Here's another prayer that we can pray. Begin in verse 10. For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God Alone, Teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Your heart must be united. Can't be double-minded. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Now ask yourself this morning, am I double-minded? Does my desire for God's wisdom waver? Are there other competing desires that are hindering me from deriving the benefits of the wisdom that God promised to give? Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Here's one of those competing interests for some. Matthew 6, 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What, what do we read in Psalm 86? Unite my heart to fear thy name. You know a good way to get your heart in the right place? Invest in the right place. Your heart will follow your investments. Verse number 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 22, the line of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be, look at this, single, 
thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. What do you need? You need a united heart. You need a single eye. Now that doesn't mean you just need one eyeball, okay? You just need to focus your attention in one direction. You can e- your eye can either be single, verse 22, or your eye can be evil in verse 23. Don't be double-minded. Let me show you the importance of this. Come to 1 Chronicles 12. 1 Chronicles chapter 12. That's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Chronicles. 1 Chronicles. Chapter 12, verse 33. This is a list of the men of Israel who made David king. And the Bible says, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 33, Of Zebulun, such as went forth to battle, expert in war, with all instruments of war, 50,000 which could keep rank. Look what the Bible says of them. They were not of double heart. Okay? So these Zebulonites, these men of Zebulun, they were single-minded. They did not have a double heart. Why was that so important? They were men of war. They went forth to battle. They had to keep rank. If you're in a battle, you had better be committed If you're going to go fight in a contest against an enemy, you better not be having second thoughts. Remember in Israel? They were getting ready to go to battle. Okay, anybody just get married? Go home. Your heart's not here. Anybody scared? Go home. We don't want you on the battlefield. Right? And they would would weed out the double-minded. Because you can't be double-minded in the battle or you're going to lose. Are we not in a battle? Are the stakes not high? Do we not face an enemy with incredible strength? It's important that we, like the men of Zebulun, don't go into the battle with a double heart, okay? Um, We're going to have to skip over the example of Reuben because I want to show you Jehoshaphat. There there are many people in the Bible who were double-minded, and it was never a good thing, always with with horrible consequence. Come to 1 Kings 22. I'm going to show you Jehoshaphat. He was a double-minded man. And his problem was his desire to fit in. So it made him double-minded. 1 Kings 22, verse number 2. The Bible says, It came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now, we're not going to read the background of Jehoshaphat. He was a good king. He did a lot of good things. But right here, he came down to the king of Israel. It's a red flag if you know who the king of Israel was. 
at this time. It was the husband of Jezebel, a man by the name of Ahab, a man uh, that the Bible says was the most wicked king in Israel's history. Josh Fat's going to go pay him a, vis- a visit, not for the purpose of evangelism. They're going to hang out. Verse number three. And the king of Israel said unto his servants, Know ye that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and we be still and take it not out of the hand of the king of Syria. So uh, Ahab and Joshphat are sitting there, and Ahab brings up this place that they'd like to reclaim. And he said in Joshphat, Wilt thou go with me to battle to Ramoth Gilead? And Joshphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. That sound good to you? Joshphat, worship God. Ahab, worship Baal. Joshphat said to Ahab, I'm just like you are. Yeah, sure, I'll go with you. Then look at verse 5. And Joshphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire, I pray thee, at the word of the Lord today. Now, if that's not the definition of a double-minded man, I'm not sure what is. In verse 4, Joshphat says to Ahab, I'm just like you. And in verse 5, Joshphat says, but let's ask God. Now, we're not going to take the time to read all of 1 Kings 22 uh, this morning, but you're perhaps familiar with the account. Uh, What Ahab does is he asks, and all these prophets lie and say it's a great idea. Go to Ramoth Gilead. God is with you. He'll prosper you. He's going to give you the victory. Nothing to worry about. And Joshua's sitting there, and he's thinking, is there not a real prophet here? And they bring out Micaiah, and Micaiah tells the king the truth that God is not with him, that if Ahab goes to the battle, he's going to die. That's the real answer from the real prophet of the Lord. Verse 29, so the king of Israel and Joshphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. (laughs) Verse 5, what does God say about it? Verses 6 through 28, God says no. Verse 29, so Joshphat went. Look at verse number 30. And the king of Israel said to Joshphat, I will disguise myself and enter the battle. But put thou on my robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went in the battle. But the king of Syria commanded his 32 captains that had ruled over his chariot, saying, Fight fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. So Ahab's going to go out and with Gilead, and Joshua's going to go with them. And Ahab says, hey, I'm going to look like just one of the regular guys, but you make sure you look like a king. And Joshua's like, okay. It sounds good. Like, what in the world? Joshphat, how are you so stupid? Double-minded will make you dumb. Okay? Verse number 32. Came to pass when the captains of the chariots saw Joshphat, that they said, surely it's the king of Israel. Huh, I wonder if that's why Ahab made the suggestion that he did. Maybe he thought. They'll think he's me and try to kill him. Somehow, Josh Fett didn't pick up on that. Now, it seemed like he definitely should have. Right? Again, this is a king that did many great things. This is a king, the Bible has a lot of good things to say about him. But he was real dumb 
in 1 Kings 22. Why? He was double-minded. And it came to pass, verse 33, when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. Joshua figures it out when they come after him. And he cries out, and God miraculously spares him. But you need to be careful counting on God's miraculous intervention in your life. You do something stupid, he might just let you pay for it. So double-mindedness caused Joshua to make some really dumb decisions. And being double-minded will put you in some dangerous situations. Joshua put himself in real danger here in 1 Kings 22. And you don't want to do that. We don't have time to study the rest of Joshua's life. But let me quickly recount to you what history tells us. His son married the daughter of Ahab. That whole alliance he made with Ahab didn't turn out real well in the long term. His son Jehoram married Athaliah, Ahab's daughter. When Jehoram ascended to the throne upon upon Joshua's death, he killed all of his brothers to make sure there was no rival and no competition. Ahaziah was Joshua's grandson who took the throne upon Jehoram's death. And Ahaziah was executed when God raised up Jehu to purge the house of Ahab. Remember that whole deal? Well, guess what happened when Ahaziah died? His mother Athaliah, that's Jehoram's wife, that's Ahab's daughter, then executed all of her grandchildren to make sure she would have no rivals to the throne. God miraculously spared Joash, who was an infant at the time and came to the throne at the age of seven. I'm just saying, Jehoshaphat's double-minded alliance with Ahab and his desire to fit in, it was really destructive. It caused him to be very unstable. You need wisdom. You need to ask God for wisdom. But you've got to make up your mind it's really what you want. Don't waver. Ask in faith. God will give you wisdom. And just just unite your heart. Make up your mind. Plant your feet. All right? Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for uh, the truth of your word this morning. And God, help us to take heed to it and be blessed by it. Uh, Lord, we're excited about going to the church house now and opening hymnal and singing your praise and fellowship with one another, studying the Bible some more. Pray that you'd help us. God, we need your help. Help us to honor you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.